so let me just say this again. Is we are going to talk about covenant a little bit because covenant is in this text. And we're going to talk about uh, some of the specifics of why we think membership is valuable uh, and important. Um, but this text is a unique one. It's unique because this is probably one of the most familiar texts that you know, at least part of it. Because we read a part of it every month when we have communion together. But we only read a part of it. And so there's some contextual things here before and after that I hope will kind of open up a deeper understanding for you of of what these words really mean. And so then when we do go to communion uh, at the end, that it will have kind of maybe a refreshed significance in your mind. Uh, And I hope that each month leading forward where we have communion, that you'll look back on this and you'll remember, oh yeah, here's why Paul wrote these things. This is the importance. This is the significance of why we should do these things, why we should remember. So, just as a point of clarification and and context leading up to this moment, is last week at the beginning of chapter 11, we started a new section, and the theme is worship. How do we worship God? And last week, we looked at kind of a, a, a difficult text, a little bit more controversial sometimes, uh, and I hope I addressed it reasonably well. And, and if you didn't get a chance to watch it, um, I would encourage you to, uh, just because it is a very interesting part. And, and I was saying, I was on a roof again for one day this last week with a guy who doesn't know Jesus. And so he asked me, you know, what do you do for a living? And we got to have some conversation. And he's like, well, well how do you like, decide what you're going to say each Sunday? I said, you know, I do it the easy way. Is I just pick a book and I have to work my way through it. And, and one of the reasons that I do that is so when we get to very difficult, hard passages like that, you know it's coming. And I can't just ignore it and pretend like it's not there and move on. So we, we dealt with a hard text last week. Next week, we're going to look at spiritual gifts and members of that body, which, which we already sort of did last week. We are going to again this week. Because in all three of those examples, today being the Lord's Supper, Uh, All three of these examples are ideas of when we worship, worship is not primarily about me and God, but about us and God. And so in last week's text, it was some of these cultural issues of make sure that you are honoring your fellow believers, because how can you worship Christ but not honor each other? If you're angry or if you are judgmental towards someone right beside you in the chair or the pew or the seat, whatever it might be, and you're casting condemnation on them while you're praising the name of Jesus, Paul says you can't do that. It doesn't work. You're tricking yourself. You're you're thinking you're worshiping God, but you're not. And so that's going to continue in this text. That's going to continue in the next text. Because right when God creates Adam and Eve, and I said this last week, or when he created Adam, he went, it's not good that man's alone. And he gave, uh, he created Eve to be that completion for Adam so that together they could do the very task that God had called them to do. To be in community together. And we as the church, again, part of why we bring people into membership is because we're saying we want to do this together. We want some accountability so that we can't just kind of fade in between the cracks or just sit in the background and not be involved. We're all desperately needed. Next week we're going to talk about this. Lee already read the text. Is Each one of us, if you think about it from a body metaphor, 
each one of us are necessary for the other. And so we come together, we worship together, we love each other together. And you know what? I think it speaks very loudly to the world outside. When we can come together, we can say, we put all our differences aside. And we put what I want and what you want aside because we care more about what's important for both of us than just me. So that's the context to which we find ourselves in this passage. So again, some of these verses are very familiar, but, but try and kind of step back from that familiarity and, and just listen and read along uh, these verses together kind of with a fresh perspective. So we're starting in chapter 11, verses 17 to the end of the text. So Paul says this, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you directions when I come. So we move into a pretty harsh text into a pretty direct, uh, Paul's not happy, right? He started last uh, in verse 2 last week of, now I commend you in some of these things. He needed to clarify a few things, but saying you are following the traditions that have been passed on and good for you and I'm happy about that. But then when it comes to this issue, Paul gets very, very animated. Before he even deals with the Lord's Supper, we're going to talk about this because uh, depending on the tradition that you grew up in, uh, depending on the church setting that you found yourself in, probably the majority of us took communion together. But there's even some, even within Christendom, there's different ideas of what that looks like, what it means. And so we're going to clarify and, and show you what our church thinks and why we think that. But suffice it to say is what's happening here and what you probably experienced do not sound similar at all. And so here, before Paul even addresses what communion is, what the purpose behind it is, he 
says some pretty harsh things. Uh, Donald Pryor writes this. He says, The church was badly splintered, and these schisms made their time of worship and fellowship so negative that Christians went away in a worse state spiritually than when they arrived. I don't know that there's a more harsh way to say something like that. The church is meant to be a place that we gather together, that we exalt Christ, that we lift him up, that we worship God, and in that we love and care for and nurture and minister to one another. That's the whole point of the church. So how could it be possible that when they came together to do that, they went away worse than when they showed up? Paul's showing, man, you guys, you're missing it. Not only are you not understanding what the church is for, but church is becoming a more of a negative thing, more of a why even do this than a positive thing. I would say it in this way, is what's happening here is exactly the opposite of what church should look like. And so that's a pretty, pretty grave uh, concern. So Paul says this, and I want to clarify this before, right? So I do not commend you in this. Things are actually worse when you get together. In the first place, and he doesn't actually say in the second place or in the third place, right? He just kind of gets hung up on this one point. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Well, we already know this, right? We go back to the beginning of the book. There are various divisions in various ways. The predominant one at the beginning of the book was about which teacher you think is the right teacher and how you were going to align yourself with Paul or with Apollos because that person understood and the other person didn't. Maybe Peter was the one that I was going to follow, but not these guys. And they was dividing them, and, and Paul had been arguing all through those first few chapters, unity within the body is central. You have to unite together because if you divide over some of these very silly, ridiculous things, all you're doing is showing the world that we who claim to follow Jesus can't even get along together. But he clarifies it here interestingly. I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Does that seem like a strange sentence to anybody else? Right? You read that and you're like, hang on, there must? be divisions among you. Well, Frank Thielman writes it this way. He says, in God's providential direction of the life of the church, he allows controversy in order that the genuine spiritual quality of individual believers would be known. So in other words, this is we only grow when we're faced with what? Opposition, difficulty, challenge, right? Like, and, and our lives bear this out is when life is going real smooth and real good, mountaintop experience type of scenario, is often we aren't growing very deeply. We're very thankful. We're very grateful for what God is doing. But when life gets very messy and disease happens or another illness or somebody dies and we rally together because we have nowhere else to turn, that's when our faith grows deeply. And what Frank Thielman's pointing out here is that within the church, the reality of growth is that it comes in the face of opposition. And the reality of any organism, and in this case the church, is that there's opposition to that organism. And, and Paul warns Titus, you know what, some of that opposition, it's going to happen from with, within. In fact, much of it's going to happen from within. 
And so this is why it's so important that we know the Word of God, that we go back to the Word of God, that when a new teaching comes out or a a new theological position about some cultural issue comes out, that we go, what does the Bible say about this? Not what is popular. Not what people think should be true. But what what does Scripture teach about this? We need to go to it. And we can't go to it unless we understand it. And so... We humble ourselves together in this way with church membership because we're saying, I will submit to the authority of those who are to hold an account for me according to what the elders are asked to do in, in, in the New Testament churches. Wherever elders are brought in, that's their primary responsibility. And so we take that very seriously that the growth of that individual is so important. And so when they submit to that, that gives us this responsibility to go, man, I have to make sure that they are growing in their love for Jesus. And so Paul says there's going to be some in there that don't. There's going to be some in there that fight and argue. In fact, in Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, don't don't get sucked into all these meaningless conversations about genealogies and myths and all these things because those people are just trying to start a fight. You ever had a conversation with someone? They were just trying to start a fight. Maybe this morning before church. Hopefully not. Right? Is That's so often the case when we end up in conversation with people is we know real quick whether they're genuine and whether they care for us, whether they want to have a conversation or whether they're just trying to prove their point. And probably we're guilty of that as well sometimes. And so Paul says there's divisions in here. I understand why there's divisions in there. There even has to be divisions in there. But then he says this, when you come together, what does it say? It's not the Lord's Supper. What you are doing is not what you think you are doing because what you are doing is the opposite of what you should be doing. I think I said that right. It is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Now, can you imagine within the church? It's like, well, let's get together and let's have a party and let's just get loaded. Like, that's real biblical, isn't it? It's crazy. And yet, that's what's happening within the church. Mark Taylor writes this, The Corinthians may have called their fellowship meals the Lord's Supper, but Paul could not praise them since their gathering failed to demonstrate even the most basic understanding of the significance of the meal. They had lost the point. I've said this so often over the last number of weeks, is we are to be others-focused not self-focused. And there's always going to be various amounts of division for various reasons. Here, the issue appears to be a socioeconomic issue. There's the poor and there's the rich. And in some ways, when you think about it, this could be just the hugest moment to speak to the world to show that those things do not divide us but that the poor and the rich can come together, which all through history has been a difficult thing, no matter culture, can come together and can worship together and to share things equally the way that God has called them to. This could be just the best potential to speak to the world. And yet what they're doing is getting drunk instead of sharing. I mean, that's exactly the, right? When we think about teaching our kids not to be selfish, look how much you have and look how much they don't. 
And we as a parent go, it's so obvious, we should do this. Well, here this is happening, and this happens in our hearts all the time. Right? I'm reminded of the prophet Nathan. David has an affair with Bathsheba, right? And to cover it up, he then kills one of his mighty men, one of his greatest leaders. And and Nathan, the prophet, comes up to him and he uses this analogy of, of shepherding, right? And he says that this one guy had basically everything he could possibly want. And then this other guy had one little lamb. And he cared for this lamb and he loved this lamb. And then the rich guy had company come to visit, but he didn't want to sacrifice from his own flock, so he stole that one lamb and he killed that one lamb. And David's just so indignant. What does he say? Anybody remember? That man should die. And then what does Nathan say? You are that man. Right? Is even David someone who great things are spoken of? It's the only man in Scripture that says he's a man after God's own heart. Even he had these moments where his selfishness, he, he had everything he could possibly want, but took more. Within the context of our worship service, in the context of when we gather together, we are supposed to care for one another. Pratt writes this, they, they, the Corinthians, obviously ate and drank to excess. This would have been bad enough, but they magnified the harm by leaving nothing for others. These social practices were so common that it would have seemed natural for them in the church to do the same. This is the key. The gospel, however, demands a radical departure from custom. This is why the New Testament warns against giving special honor to the wealthy. I just want to read that one sentence again. The gospel, however, demands a radical departure from this custom. Is the gospel demands. It doesn't just suggest. It doesn't just, you know, gently nudge. It demands. You and this person, when you stand before God, you are completely equal. Your, your wealth has nothing to do with it. Your talents have nothing to do with it. Your abilities have nothing to do with it. Everything, when we come before God, we stand completely equal. And so when we come together as the church, regardless of what your gifts are and my gifts are, how much money you have or how little that I have, none of those things matter. What matters is our love for Jesus. Paul is very upset here, and I think so should we too. He says this now, right? What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Notice he doesn't say like, like you misrepresent the church. He's actually saying you despise it. If you live this way, you despise the church of God. How can you despise the church of God and yet love Jesus? When Jesus gave his very life for that church. Right? The church is talked about as Jesus' bride. This is one of the reasons why I get so bent out of shape when people talk about, I can be a Christian and not be part of the church. We're missing out on so much of what the scriptures are about. It's not about me, it's about us. And if I can't join a group of people without finding fault and finding error and finding issue all the time, this isn't about worshiping God. It's about me trying to find a God that I want to worship. No different than the idolatry that we've talked about at length over the last number of weeks. How can we humiliate someone within the church? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I will not.
We then come to the familiar section of the passage. Now, again, I focused a lot there and was, I hope, as direct as I could be so that we would understand the context from which these very familiar verses come out of. So then Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That's just basically his way of saying this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all focus on this Last Supper with Jesus. The tradition is passed down from Jesus to the disciples, to Paul, to so on and so on and so on. This has been passed down. It's been delivered to you. When Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And give thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way he took the cup after supper, saying, this, is, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Literally, Paul's saying, the night that he was betrayed, he was serving, not being served. The night when he was betrayed gave to the disciples uh, a teaching, something for them to remember so that they would do and focus constantly on the cross of Christ. They didn't understand all of that, yet we have hindsight to look back on this and we can know it. We understand exactly what is happening here. Paul's saying, look, you are so focused on you, what you deserve, what you want, what you're going to get, and you couldn't care less about anybody else around you, and so you're getting drunk while others are going hungry, and yet the Lord's Supper was about when Jesus was about to give his life, when he was about to sacrifice, when he was serving in that moment, this is where this comes from. He's saying, Corinthians, you totally, totally misunderstand this. Now, let me deal with a couple of these differences. So the ways in which we can interpret exactly the teaching about communion or the Lord's Supper, there's several different traditions, and I just want to explain some of the more uh, common traditions and then explain what ours is. So one of them is something that we call transubstantiation, and this is where the when we, in a minute here, we have a cracker and, and some juice, right? And that teaching is that in that moment that those elements literally transform into the body and the blood of Jesus. This is something that has been taught uh, and viewed by many people. It's predominantly a Catholic tradition. Our church, uh, we, we don't follow this. We reject that teaching. We don't think that that's what happens. We don't think that's what Paul is teaching or showing. Uh, another tradition is that the literal body uh, of Je- the, sorry the literal body and blood of Jesus are present within the elements, though a transformation doesn't occur. And then there are some uh, that say that Christ is actually present during the communion act. But what most evangelical tradition, traditions believe is that Christ is present in a symbolic way, in a spiritual way. This is the model that we hold. We believe that Christ is spiritually present with us as we partake this together, but that the act itself is one of symbolism. It's one where we slow ourselves down, where we remind ourselves, here's what we are to do because we remember the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't want to spend a whole bunch of time trying to say why the other ones we don't think are biblical. Suffice it to say this, is if we say Jesus is physically present there, then we're making some kind of a statement about Jesus' resurrection, his ascension, and saying that his job wasn't yet complete. When we say that 
he's really present with us, does that mean only when we have communion is Jesus actually really present with us? Because the scripture seems to argue that. Right? Classic text where two or three or more gathered, right? I am there in the midst. So when we celebrate communion together, we think it's serious, we think it's important. We wrote it right in the membership covenant that we read is that we're going to do this regularly. We believe it's something that the church has been called to do. So we're not trying to say it's just this symbolic thing that has, it is symbolic, but has great meaning, great depth. And we will gather together because, frankly, I need to be reminded regularly of the cross. I need to be reminded that Jesus shed his blood for me. I need to be reminded that the problems and the sufferings and the hurts that I have in my life, though they are real, are not the only things happening. We all need to be reminded of this. And so we come together in this way. So then verses 27 and 29, I I almost always read as well, but then I stop there, and perhaps you might have thought this is, that's very unlike me to stop in the middle of a sentence, or I guess in the middle of a paragraph and just ignore the context after. So this morning we're going to deal with that, and you're going to see, and I hope you understand a little bit more. So Paul says in verse 27, right, whoever therefore, right, because of all of this that we've read, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. If you, Corinthians, care nothing for your fellow believers and only for yourself, then you miss the very essence of the gospel. You're guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So, because of this, examine yourself and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, we say that, and and we say it in a similar context, but a little bit different, right? Is we say we're supposed to examine our hearts and make sure that we don't have something against our brother. Right, Jesus, in, uh, in Matthew chapter 5, 23 and 24, he says this, If you uh, are offering your gift at the altar, and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Now again, we're talking sacrificial system, but the principle there is true. Is Jesus is saying you cannot sacrifice to God while you harbor all this bitterness or anger or resentment or whatever it is in your heart you got to deal with that first. And so when we come to communion, is we examine our hearts to make sure that, man, that I am walking in step with the Lord. Now, none of us are worthy. Right? So don't get it in the sense of like, like i got to make sure that I'm living perfectly this week. And as long as I've done nothing wrong this week, then I can have, that's the wrong assumption. What we're reading here is going, am I trying to follow after Christ? Am I submitting to his authority? Am I repenting when I give in to selfish desires? Does my life show that I want to live for Jesus more than I want to live for myself? That's the idea for us. For them, Paul's literally saying, it's not the suggestion. He's saying, look, you are misusing the Lord's Supper, so examine your heart. Examine what you're thinking and what you are doing. And then this is the clarification, and this is why we don't read these verses all the time, because then it's a very specific context. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. If I said that every Sunday, right, you'd be like, whoa, if we don't take communion, right, are we going to, like, be struck down dead here? What's happening? In this context, literally, Paul is saying, you are approaching this so cavalier with so little concern for anything God's divine judgment is over your church. 
And there are some that are weak and there are some that are ill and there are some that have died because of the way in which you're approaching them. Now, I would argue that we probably do not have these same kind of issues. But within our own hearts, we might. Within our own hearts, we may be cheating someone at our place of work showing on Saturday, showing up on Sunday, taking communion and going, oh, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. How can we do that while we're cheating someone, while we're stealing, while we're holding bitterness and resentment? Then he says this funny sentence, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. If we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. It's an interesting sentence. I think simply what he's saying is if you actually took the time to evaluate your own heart, you would repent and turn from that so that God's judgment wouldn't need to come on you. He would recognize, man, I got I to gotta change here. I got to smarten up. When we are judged by the Lord, now again, we talk about this lots, we are disciplined. Why are we disciplined? So that we may not be condemned along with the world, right? So there's hope here. Paul's saying, look, the reason that you're disciplined for these things is so that you don't just get cast into hell. The reason you're disciplined is so that you would repent and turn to Christ and go, I, I've lost sight of everything. I'm not living the way that I should be. So that we would turn. This is why we as the church matter. Because I need brothers and sisters who evaluate my life probably a lot better than I evaluate my own life. And who then see me and go, Greg, you said or you're doing or this is what's happening. This is not consistent with who you are saying you're going to be. I need that rebuke. I need, and, and again, it's not like judging rebuke. It's loving, gracious rebuke where they come alongside and say, this is wrong. Are you willing to repent of this? As I need to be reminded of that because when I get that discipline, that is when I turn back towards Christ. So let me go back up a little bit here just for a second now. When Jesus says, back into the communion text here, he gives thanks, he breaks it, he says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he takes the cup after supper, saying this cup, the new covenant, there's that word that we're going to talk about now. In my blood, do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Right. So you see cup, bread, cup, well, I guess it's bread, cup, bread, cup, bread, cup, over and over talking about this covenant, this, this connection that's together. So this is what Morris writes. He said, Jesus is saying that the shedding of his blood is the means of establishing a new covenant. This covenant provides forgiveness of sins and opens the way for the activity of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the believer. The whole Jewish system is replaced by the Christ. Everything centers on the death of the Lord, and it is that death which establishes the new covenant. When you think of the old covenant, right? So if there's a new covenant, the old covenant. The old covenant is a promise that God said, you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. And they constantly rebel. And they constantly turn away. And so sometimes people say, well, the God of the Old Testament seems all about wrath and anger. But I would actually argue if you read it, what you see is that the God of the Old Testament is more faithful and more patient and more gentle and more kind than we could ever imagine. Yes, there's some wrath. And yes, there's a lot of discipline and consequence. But it's not because somebody did one thing wrong and so God just crushed them. 
He was so patient calling them back to himself over and over and over and over again. And none of us would ever have had the patience for that. And when we end up in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah talks about this new covenant. He's looking forward to a new covenant, one based on forgiveness of sins and that the law of God would be written in the hearts of people. Now notice the new covenant replaces the old covenant, but it replaces it by imprinting the old covenant onto the heart. They're they're one and the same. It's two parts of the same thing. Jesus' blood deals with, with our sin in an in a eternal sense. The sacrificial system, it was always temporary and it was pointing to something, but all of it was meant to be so that this, that we would be obedient to what God has called us to do. And when he imprints that on our hearts, when the Holy Spirit is given to us, he convicts us, according to what scripture says, for righteousness. So that we would know what's right and what's good. The Holy Spirit is imprinted on our hearts. And so this new covenant becomes this way of living. Uh, Many scholars call the church Christ's what? Covenant community. It's a promise of entering into the church is this place where we find meaning and acceptance and love and joy, but also discipline, correction, all of these things. We are together in this. I want to read to you a quote because I just think this is is really, really well-worded by John Piper. And he's talking about this membership covenant and how, how necessary it is to commit to one another. He says this, One way to conceive of covenant membership um, is like a marriage without vows. Neither marriage vows nor church covenants are outlined explicitly in the Bible. But the reason we have marriage vows is because what is outlined in the Bible is the very essence and nature of marriage as a covenant commitment in which two people come together and make pledges and promises and covenants with each other to be what they are for each other, husband and wife. The same is true of the church. Man, that hit me like a ton of bricks this week. It's like, when we get married, why do we make vows? Well, that's not really a biblical thing. It is. It just isn't explicitly said, do this. We make a vow where we say, I am going to do this for you. And usually when we do it in the context of a Christian wedding, because God has already done this for me. And so I'm going to do that for you because he's done it for me. I'm going to forgive you when you wrong me because God has forgiven me. I'm going to love you no matter what happens because God has chosen that he will never let go of me. And so I'm never going to let go of you. All of these things are true. And so we declare them to one another in the presence of witnesses so that everyone in attendance can go, you promised to do this. You didn't just say it behind closed doors. You told everybody. Same with church membership. That's what we're trying to do for one another. We're entering into a relationship that we think is actually incredibly beautiful, incredibly meaningful. The covenant membership is simply this, is I'm declaring that I care more about you and you and you and you than I do about me. And sometimes I will not act that way. Sometimes my own selfishness will get the better of me and I will need you and you and you and you to come to me and to call me out on those things. Again, right, with mercy and grace and love, because all of it's meant to lead us to Jesus. 
right? As soon as we approach someone with the I told you so mentality, it never works. But when we want each other to grow and to care for each other, this is what happens. So he finishes, so then my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, right? So in other words, I'm going to use the modern day translation of Greg now, is don't think of the church, uh, don't think of communion at the church as a potluck, right? Or as a buffet, right? Like I remember a story of someone said he went on this one cruise and this dude showed up on this cruise and right, how many been on a cruise? Try and convince my wife to go with me, okay? Because I think it would be awesome. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, Shay. Um, is, he said the food, right, it's all covered. And so you just eat and just eat and just eat. And this one guy told me, he said, I'm pretty sure that that guy did not eat anything all that week leading up to that because he just, just destroyed everything imaginable. It's like, right, once we have that idea in our minds of like, I paid for this, I'm going to get everything I can. That's not a very good way to view it. Now, if we view the church in a different sense and we view that the blood of Jesus covers all of our sin forever, there's no need to eat lots in this moment. There's no need to like save up room over the next three weeks until the next time we come together and then eat this all together. Like, the Christian life is not about binging. It's about this daily commune with God. And so when we gather together, Paul says to them, don't use this as your meal. If you're hungry, eat at home. Use this to come together to remind yourself that even in the simple act of breaking bread together and drinking together, that you were reminded that Jesus gave his life for you. That's the purpose. That's the point. Then it becomes the Lord's Supper. Otherwise, you come together for judgment. And so he reminds them, don't do that. Finishes by saying about other things, I'll give you directions when I come. We don't know what those other things are. My simple way of saying is it obviously didn't matter. This is what did matter. And so for us now, we're going to take communion together and thinking of it in this context, right, is, is I don't want to over-contextualize it and, and say, well, this isn't relevant to us, but I also don't want to under, like, let's find this healthy balance of realizing that just like the Corinthians there is that we are called to love and to care for and to enter into covenant with each other. And so we do that. And so when we come once a month, and, and it'll be twice a month now uh, for this next couple of weeks, but as we think about this, is we're examining our own hearts to make sure that my heart is right before God, that I care for my brothers and sisters, that those who are part of my family, I will do whatever I can to help. And if I do have something, if I'm bitter with somebody or angry with somebody or hurt by somebody, is, is i got to confess those things and deal with those things. And I'm not suggesting you literally get up out of your chair and you run home to go deal with those issues or knock on someone's door. Maybe you do need to do that after church. But primarily, the issue is in your own heart. Is Am I holding bitterness against somebody? God, would you help me? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, would you help me let that go? so that I don't have to deal with that anymore. So we've already read this lots. So we're going to do it very differently than we normally would. I'm going to pray. And after I'm done praying, is then you take your cracker, and 
you eat it, and you take your drink, and you drink it. And we're just going to leave it quiet. And if you need a minute or two or five or whatever you need between when we're praying and when you take communion, then that's fine. Let's examine our hearts. Let's make sure that we are approaching this moment by saying, God, I want to honor you and by honoring my fellow believers and caring for them and making sure that my heart is right before you. That's what we're going to do. So let's pray. God, as we have read at length here this morning and discussed at length, our unique situation is obviously different than the Corinthians. But often the things that happen in our hearts are, are the same no matter what the context And so, God, I pray that we would recognize that we are a body. We're going to talk about this next week. We are a body of Christ, that we are family. And we want to worship you. We want to exalt your name. We want to declare how good you are. And how can we do that if we hold bitterness and resentment and anger towards our brothers and sisters? So, God, in these moments that we're about to take together, Would we examine our hearts and would we make sure that we are endeavoring to follow after you? So God, if there's something that needs to be revealed to our hearts this morning, would you reveal that to us? If we need to have conversation later today with somebody because we need to confess something, then would you give the courage to those to go and do that? But right now, God, we want to make sure that as we evaluate our own self, God, help me and help each one here to want to follow after you in a way that honors you to the nations. The church is a unique place where we can gather together of all backgrounds, all ethnicities, all socioeconomic, just so much diversity we can gather together and say none of those things are really important. What is important is that we're a child of the King and that we are family together and we are declaring that Jesus is Lord. So help us to remember that. Help us to treat our brothers and sisters with much grace and love and mercy and respect so that when we take communion together that we recognize that we are proclaiming that you are coming again. And you are why we live. So God, we thank you for all of these things now in these next moments. May we eat the bread and drink of the cup remembering your sacrifice for us. Would it humble us? And would we be excited to look forward to the day when you come again? So God, be with us in these next couple of moments. Whenever you're ready, eat and drink in remembrance of me.
God, thank you that Jesus went to the cross so that my sins, so that each of our sins could be forgiven. Would we never approach these moments with any kind of an arrogance, but would we see just how desperately we need you? God, would we as the church speak so loudly to the world for our care and our concern for one another because we are family? So God, I pray that we would interact in a way that brings honor and glory to you. That the world would see it, that they would say, I need what that church has. And that is Jesus. As we go from this place, God, would you give us wisdom? Would you give us courage? Would you give us the right words to say in the right moments? Would you give us opportunities to show your love to a world that desperately needs it? God, we thank you for all that you're doing. Go with us now. Amen. Thank you all for joining us. Um, look forward to seeing you next week. And again, give, uh, give our two new members a little chat on the way out and, and make sure that uh, you welcome them in. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next time.